Well, I want to begin this morning with a confession. These days, when there is so much injustice in the world, I find myself being attracted to the Old Testament passages that reveal the justice of God. And there are a good many of them. In Genesis chapter 4, when Cain was judged for the first-degree murder of his own brother Abel, the Lord said, What have you done? Listen, your brother's blood cries out to me from the ground. Now you're under a curse. Cain said to the Lord, My punishment is more than I can bear. Now, I read this, and I have to tell you, I have very little sympathy for Cain. He got what he deserved, right? Then later in Genesis chapter 6, when the earth became unfit for human habitation and God rained down judgment in the flood, I see it as logical. I see it as fair, merciful even. A loving Creator would not sustain life on a planet that is characterized by universal wickedness, as the Scripture says, every inclination of the thoughts of the human heart was only evil all the time. And then in Genesis chapter 11, when the people all banded together in defiance of God, and they decided they were going to build the Tower of Babel to reach into the heavens, God confounded their speech. He scattered them throughout the earth. Hey, those ancient Babylons don't need to bother sending me an invitation to their pity party. I think they got what they deserve. When I saw the movie The Ten Commandments, I was six or seven years old, and When Charlton Heston, as Moses, lowered his staff and the Red Sea closed up on Yul Brynner as Pharaoh and his army, I wanted to stand up and cheer. I've always been impressed with General Joshua and uh, the conquest of the Promised Land. Those idolatrous and immoral Canaanites sacrificing babies to a non-existent deity named Moloch. They got what they deserved, right? And then I, I love the book of Judges. It always keeps my attention with stories like Ehud, the left-handed judge who skewered evil king Eglon, and Jael, the woman who hammered a tent peg through the temple of the evil commander Sisera while he slept. I've even smiled when I've read that verse because it says that she hammered the tent peg through his skull into the ground, and then it says, and he died. Well, yeah. Yes, he did. (laughs) So I guess you probably know who I was cheering for. When that young shepherd boy, David, charged down the hill, ran to the battle line with his sling and his stones to fight Goliath of Gath, hey, he mocked the living God. Somebody needed to step up and cut him down to size. (laughs) But today, we're not talking about David. We're talking about the son of David, Jesus And we identify Jesus as a harmless baby born in a manger. We get a mental picture of a a good shepherd carrying a wayward lamb on his shoulders. 
and we see his tears at the tomb of Lazarus or as he looked out over the city of Jerusalem. And, and we read about his gentle grace that was extended to the woman who was caught in the act of adultery. And we, we see his sensitivity taking time on a very busy day to heal an anemic old woman. And we see his compassion to reattach the severed ear of the high priest's servant in the Garden of Gethsemane. And his kindness to forgive a thief even as he willingly died on the cross for you and me. And Jesus reveals the heart of God himself. According to Colossians 1, chapter 1, verse 15, he, that is Jesus, is the image. And that word image in the Greek means reflection. It means an exact representation. He is the image of the invisible God. But folks, this morning, I want us to balance our perception of Jesus as loving and kind and merciful with what happened in the temple. As we move from Sunday to Monday of the week, the last week in the life of Jesus on this earth. Because on this Monday, we see the tough love of Jesus as He drives the money changers out of the temple. And the account is found in the text of both Matthew 21 and Mark chapter 11. If you'll let me, I'm going to consolidate these two passages because there are details I want us to pull out of each of the accounts. Mark chapter 11, verse 15, the next day, that is Monday, on reaching Jerusalem, Jesus entered the temple area and began driving out those who were buying and selling there. He overturned the tables of the money changers and the benches of those selling doves, and He would not allow anyone to carry merchandise through the temple courts. And as He taught them, He said, Is it not written, My house will be called a house of prayer for all nations? But you have made it a den of robbers. Now, Matthew has all of that material, but then he adds this in Matthew 21, verse 14. The blind and the lame came to him at the temple, and he healed them. But when the chief priests and the teachers of the law saw the wonderful things he did, and the children shouting in the temple area, Hosanna to the Son of David, they were indignant. Do you hear what these children are saying, they ask him? Yes, Jesus replied. Have you never read? From the lips of children and infants you have ordained praise. And finally in Mark eleven eighteen, the chief priests and the teachers of the law heard this and began looking for a way to kill him, for they feared him. So here we have the just side of Jesus. We have the righteous anger of Jesus. Why was He so intolerant of what was happening there in the temple that day? Well, you do know that this is the second time that He has done this. In John chapter 2, Jesus cleansed the temple at the beginning of His ministry three years earlier. And now Matthew and Mark reveal He cleansed the temple at the end of His ministry. And the first time Jesus warned in John chapter 2, verse 16, Stop turning my Father's house into a market. 
That's what he said at the beginning of his ministry in John 2. But at this second and final cleansing, his indictment was Mark eleven seven. You made my father's house a den of robbers. So in three years' time, the temple had regressed from being a market, which was bad enough, to being a den of robbers. So instead of just doing business in the court of the Gentiles, the only, the only place that the Grecian Jews had for worship, now there was actually extortion and graft taking place. Sincere people were being financially exploited, and Jesus would have none of it. You see, they were coming to the temple for Passover. They needed to buy doves or animals for offerings. They needed to exchange their money for coinage that was acceptable, that was specific to that area. And inflated prices for the animals were being charged, and unreasonable exchange fees were being demanded. So, in this place that was to be a place of worship for the Gentiles... There's the sound of haggling and money-changing hands, animal noises and smells, people running back and forth, and Jesus stepped up and took charge. And did you notice the verbs that, that came out of that text? He drove out the merchants. He knocked over the tables. He stopped those who were carrying merchandise. He's acting out here. He's not passive about what's going on. He didn't just stand by and wring his hands, and complain. And he was not intimidated by the organized crime that had invaded the temple, the most sacred place on earth. And, and Jesus doesn't call for backup. He wades into the chaos, and he's a one-man wrecking crew, and he's going to single-handedly restore order, and no one tries to stop him. Okay, so what do you think? Is there any application for us here? Is there something that can bless us or challenge us from this passage? Obviously, I think there is. And once again, I think I've got it boiled down to a single sentence. Here it is. When Jesus enters your life, things will change <laughs> for the best. And here's our bridge for personal application today. The Apostle Paul in the New Testament reveals that Christians are the temple of God, the place where His presence dwells. Look at it. 1 Corinthians 3.16, don't you know that you yourselves are God's temple and that God's Spirit lives in you? God's temple is sacred, and you are that temple. 1 Corinthians 6, 19, do you not know that your body is a temple of the Holy Spirit who is in you, whom you have received from God? You are not your own. And 2 Corinthians 6, 16, for we are the temple of God. As God has said, I will live with them and walk among them, and I will be their God, and they will be my people. Now, I see some striking parallels between what Jesus did in the temple then and what He wants to do in us, His temple now. And I, for one, want to give Him permission to do His work in me because I want my life to be clean, and I want my life 
to be ordered by His Lordship. I want Him to be Lord. Because when Jesus enters your life, things will change for the best. So here's what happens. When Jesus enters our lives, when He enters His temple, first of all, He exposes our sin. Now, I know... I know that not everyone probably likes this idea. The chief priests and the teachers of the law, they certainly resented it. And their reaction was extreme. Mark writes that they began looking for a way to kill him. When Jesus invaded the temple, he confronted what they were doing verbally and publicly. He exposed their selfishness, and undoubtedly it was humiliating for them. The fact is these merchants and these money changers had shamelessly taken over the court of the Gentiles, effectively expelling these good people from worship. But these religious leaders were profiting financially, so they ignored their conscience. People do that, you know, a lot of times. When they're benefiting financially, it's easy to ignore conscience. Jesus is described in John 3.19 as light, and light dispels darkness. This is the verdict. Light has come into the world, but men love darkness instead of light because their deeds were evil. But whoever lives by the truth comes into the light. The question is, do we have the humility before God to receive it when the Word of God, when the Word of Christ exposes sin in us? Or do we push back on the truth with defensiveness in an attempt to save face? Do we prefer darkness to the light of Christ? Do we prefer darkness to the light of truth? Probably you have heard about a physical condition called ganglioneuropathy. It's a very dangerous condition causes the nerve endings of the body to be insensitive to pain. So a person could actually die of injuries or they could die of a disease and they would never feel it. Well, there's another insensitivity which is even deadlier, and that's insensitivity to sin. And Paul said of people who have this malady in 1 Timothy chapter 4, verse 2, their consciences have been seared as with a hot iron. So let's welcome the light of His truth to illumine our dark spots. Let's allow Jesus to expose our sin so we can, in humility, call it out, repent of it, be forgiven of it, and change. What else happens when Jesus enters the temple? Well, He not only exposes our sin, but He cleanses us. He cleansed the literal temple. And he also cleanses his temple, our lives. Hebrews chapter 1, verse 3, after Jesus had provided purification for sins, he sat down at the right hand of the majesty in heaven. Revelation 1, 5, to him who loves us and has freed us from our sins by his blood, to him be power and glory forever and ever. Amen. And then there's a series of rhetorical questions in 2 Corinthians chapter 6, verse 14. Take a look. These are relevant here. What do righteousness and wickedness have in common? That's a rhetorical question. What fellowship can light have with darkness? Applied answer, none. What agreement is there between the temple of God and idols? We, we are the temple of the living God. So, we are a temple, friends. We are not a duplex. 
And our Heavenly Father is not going to move in next to anything else in our lives. He will not share our devotion with anything else or anyone else. Our submission to Jesus as Savior and Lord means we give Him carte blanche permission to both cleanse us and control our attitudes, our speech, our behavior for our good. When Jesus comes in, everything changes for the best. Here's the thing, folks. No one has ever claimed to be able to cleanse you and me from the inside out. No one. But Jesus Christ. Jesus can do what no one else can do. Forgive. Forgive. And in forgiving, to wash us clean. Ananias said to Saul in Acts 22, 16, What are you waiting for? Get up, be baptized, and wash your sins away. And Paul said in Titus 3, 5, He saved us through the washing of rebirth. Let me parade one more verse before your eyes. 1 John chapter 1, verse 19. This is written to Christian people. If we confess our sins, He is faithful and just and will forgive our sins and purify us. Purify us from all unrighteousness. So he exposes our sin. He heals us. Does anything else happen when Jesus enters the temple? Yes, he teaches us. Did you pick it up in the text? As he taught them, he said. This is a teaching moment when he cleanses the temple. My house will be called a house of prayer for all Nations And what Jesus is doing here is confronting the Jews for expelling the Gentiles from the temple, from the worship of Jehovah God. So when Jesus cleansed the temple that day, he taught the people about the heart of God to bring all nations, all nations on earth together under one head, even Christ. So the church is for all nations. And this is why here at Crossroads we have a full-time missions pastor. It's very unusual even for a megachurch, to have a full-time missions pastor. That's why we take scores of our people on mission trips year after year. It's why we partner with missionaries on the field. It's why we've sent so many of our church families to serve on the mission field through the years. It's why our dollars given to missions have more than doubled in recent years. God's kingdom is made up of people from every tongue and tribe and nation. Now, many Christians, true, many Christians never learn this or else they simply nod in agreement without any real conscience about it. If you're a disciple of Jesus, you must embrace the fact that we as the church, we are disciples making disciples here, near, and far away. So here are a couple of ways you can take an action step toward what Jesus wants to teach you. One, take our six-week momentum class the next time it's offered. It's starting again coming up this Tuesday at 6.30 p.m. in the student theater, and it's full except for one table. And I don't know, we may have three or four places left. Otherwise, the class is full this go-round. But the next time it comes up, listen, I've taken this class I don't know anything that's been more personally encouraging and challenging for me this past year than to take that momentum class. Second possibility on Sunday, Feb February the 23rd, Sunday, March the 2nd, two weeks in a row, 
each weekend we're offering a class called Crossing Cultures. And even, this is a, even if this is a brand new thought, I encourage you to schedule one of these classes and come expecting to have your eyes open. Friends, Jesus wants to come into your life and teach you His house is for all nations. So will you put yourself in a position to learn that, to have more of a conscience about that? Closely related, when Jesus enters the temple, he elevates the value of prayer in us. He said, my house will be called a house of prayer. What's he talking about? My house. He's talking about you and me, friends, Christians individually, the church corporately. 1 Timothy chapter 2, verse 1, Paul writes, I urge then, first of all, that requests, prayers, intercession, and thanksgiving be made. I want men everywhere to lift up holy hands in prayer. First of all, he's writing to the church, writing to Timothy to tell the churches, I urge, first of all, the priority of prayer. Friends, it hit me right between the eyes this week. I've never seen it before. I was reading in Revelation chapter 5, verse 8. It says that in heaven, when the 24 elders fall at the feet of Jesus, each one is holding a golden bowl full of incense. And what is this incense that is so fragrant to Jesus? It's identified right in the passage. It identifies in the text that that incense in these golden bowls is the prayers of Christians. Just imagine it. When you and I kneel or stand or sit to pray, really opening our hearts to God, our prayers are so precious to Him that they're kept like a treasure, incense in a golden bowl, presented to Him as an offering in heaven. Friends, this is so convicting to me. Folks, if I knew that someone I loved was cherishing my words that much, I would want to communicate with them regularly. I'm convicted and determined to make my life, to make our church even more a house of prayer. Matthew 7, 7, Ask, and it will be given to you. Jeremiah 29, 13, You will find me when you seek me with all your heart. James 4, 2, you do not have because you do not ask God. Prayer is the most central activity of life for a Christian. Hebrews chapter 4, verse 16, and I hope there's not too much Bible in this message today. I've worried about that. Hebrews 4.16, let us then approach the throne of grace with confidence so that we may receive mercy and find grace to help us in our time of need. Jesus wants his Father's house to be a house of prayer. We are his house. Not as much a house of preaching or a house of fellowship or a house of activity. Many more of God's promises are attached to prayer. 
than to service. He wants our temples. He wants our lives and our churches to first be houses of prayer. Now, I'm aware that you and I do not get everything we ask for in prayer. But we also know as God's children that our Heavenly Father knows how to give good gifts to His children. And our all-knowing, trustworthy Heavenly Father will sometimes answer our higher unspoken prayers rather than our, rather than our immediate spoken prayers. And yet, how often do we go without experiencing God's best in our lives? Simply because we just do not pray. We do not share life with Him on a practical level. Oh, what peace we often forfeit. Oh, what needless pain we bear, all because we do not carry everything to God in prayer. Well, what else changes when Jesus enters the temple? Well, He heals us. Did you catch it in the text? The blind and lame came to him at the temple, and he healed them. Now, Jesus didn't hit and run. He didn't leave the scene of the crime. After he cleansed the temple, he stayed there. And he showed God's mercy to those who were suffering. And he wants to heal us and then use us as his healing agents. He wants us to be saved and then to help others experience his forgiveness. A couple things here. First of all, his healing is always spiritual, and it is often physical. And never forget this. Jesus doesn't always cure us, but He always heals us. And, of course, to belong to Him is to one day experience the ultimate healing. Well, finally, when Jesus enters the temple... Your life, my life, there's one other thing he changes. That is, he elevates the value of praise and worship in us. You remember the children were shouting Hosanna to the son of David. And the religious leaders said, you need to censor these kids. You need to tell them to shut up. And Jesus said, haven't you heard? From the lips of children and infants, you have ordained praise. Now, I love it when we have our praise kids up here and we have our king's kids up in front leading worship services on the weekend. <laughs> Those kids can put me on the floor. <laughs> they move me to involuntary tears often, and I'm not a crier. I'm not a big crier. Here's the point. Jesus coming into your life will elevate the value and the importance of praise and worship. Not only in the weekend assemblies, but throughout the course of the week. So make, make time and find a place to get into the presence of Jesus, and He will draw praise and worship out of you. Because when Jesus enters your life, things will change for the best. Stand with prayer, with me for prayer, please. Lord, I just wish this morning we had time to turn this, this fellowship into a testimony meeting because I would love to hear the stories from these pews this morning, stories from people who would testify that when Jesus came into their lives, He changed things for the best. And Lord, 
I'm aware that there's some in this assembly that have held Jesus at arm's length. I pray they would they would cease to do that and let him come in because when he enters, he brings the best with him. We thank you for what he's done in our lives, our marriages, our homes, the lives of our children, our grandchildren. We praise you and thank you that the best comes with the Lordship of Jesus. In his name we pray. Amen.